Are you ready to finally heal your body, mind, and spirit? Rejuvenate with a tune to the moon, 24-7 holistic coaching. An online therapy program designed for you to self-heal and for you to self-love. Book your online coaching session with a tune to the moon holistic coaching at attm247.com. That's attm247.com. It has been said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. Here, we connect anonymously. This is Addicts in the Dark with Quick Nick. Addicts in the Dark. Hello. Yo. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I take it you've found me from listening to the podcast? I did. Very interesting. I like the format. Thank you. So I I take it that means you know the deal. Just don't give me your name and Mm -hmm. don't tell me your P.O. box number, your GPS (laughs) coordinates. Yeah. Um, Well, and... It's interesting that you bring that up because I'm definitely going to be talking about some locations, Um, but I'm going to be a little careful because if I get too specific, uh, it might dox me and I'd rather not do that given that I work in the medical field and kind of a touchy subject in medicine. We're really not very accepting of the fact that addiction doesn't discriminate. Right. Doesn't matter how educated you are. Doesn't matter how much money you have. It can happen to any of us. Much like it happened to you. Mm-hmm. So tell me about your addiction. Um. So I was born in a cult. <laughs> now that is an intro. <laughs> Which is uh, not something I would have chosen for myself. But my parents were born in a cult, so really, you know, it was kind of like generations of indoctrination. And I was the oldest of a really big family. Um, And I remember one of my first memories is my parents taking me aside and saying, look, we are counting on you to show your younger siblings an example of how things are supposed to be. And if you fuck up, it's going to be really bad. So don't fuck up. I mean, obviously, they didn't say it like that because this is like a super religious cult. But um, so I remember just growing up terrified to get bad grades to do poorly in anything, to not look right, to not say something right. So like super high anxiety growing up. Um, And I remember being young and sitting in church and thinking, you know, I think this might be bullshit, (laughs) but not being able to say anything to anyone. So because I literally did not know anyone who was not part of this religion. So um, about when I was 12, I started having suicidal thoughts. And my parents found out and they were like, well, you just need to pray harder. (laughs) Wait, that's not working? Well, you must be sinning somewhere. And not too long after that, I had like some sort of a procedure. I can't remember if it was my wisdom teeth or something, a dental procedure. And I had some Vicodin and that was my first time. And I was like, this, this is the answer. Oh, my God. And, you know, at that age, you can't really 
get that kind of stuff. So um, as I got older, you know, anytime I had the chance to get something like that, I was like, oh, yeah, great. Um, how do I get more? <laughs> anyway, uh, so anytime I could get it, I, I was getting it which wasn't very often, unfortunately. So I go on to college, and my parents forced me to go to a church school because the purpose of college for people in this cult is to get married, and that was not my plan. I wanted to uh, study medicine, and that was absolutely not okay. Um, And after a few years in college and me not getting married, my parents were getting pretty upset, and so they were like, look, you either get married or you go do service for this church, this cult. And I'm like, oh, that's an easy choice. I'm not going to get married. <laughs> so um, the this religion sent me to Russia. So I go to Russia, learn the language, live there for a few years, meet who, the man who's now my ex-husband. At the time, I didn't realize that he was really kind of a bad guy and he was looking for a way to escape before he got in major trouble for crossing the wrong people. And anyway, um, so I didn't realize all that. I just thought, oh, you know, he loves me. Let's get married. I'll bring you to the United States. Anyway, so yeah, we got married, came to the U.S. We had a kid. He was working in the U.S. as a pilot. And um, I did not want to have a kid. It was a big surprise to me. Um, And this child that was born ended up having a lot of problems and needed a lot of surgeries. And I had massive postpartum depression. And I remembered that Vicodin. And I was like, well, how do I get them? And it was surprisingly easy. Not only to get Vicodin, but to get, you know, all sorts of prescription drugs. And so I started amassing a collection of all sorts of different prescription drugs. Um, And it was super easy at the time because I didn't look like someone who would be, you know, your typical, at the time, stereotypical drug seeker. I knew what to say. I knew how to act. And no one thought anything of it. Things were also different at that time. This was 24 years ago. Um, so, you know, no one was freaked out about the opioid crisis. No one was freaked out about benzos. No one was really freaked out about anything. And the internet was really new and it was super easy at the time to order just about anything from just about anywhere. So between that and the internet, I had whatever I wanted. Um, nobody knew my parents had no idea. My husband had no idea. And I was like, I got the cheat code to life. And I did that, you know, as I needed it for about 10 years. I got two degrees. I got really, you know, into my career. I did whatever I wanted. I felt like, you know, I am killing it here. I didn't go to medical school, but I got the career, you know, second choice career. And I was super happy and I was working in mental health. And I was also feeling like a really, really big fraud. Because I was telling all these people, look, you know, this is how you have to, to be. This is what you should do. And then I was going home and I was popping pills. And anyway, 
Um, then I was like, okay, we're going to have another kid. I'm going to stop all my meds. And I did. I got pregnant. I had a second kid. Tons of complications. Baby came early. I almost died. Spent weeks and weeks in the, uh, in the ICU, in the hospital. Had to regain my strength to learn how to walk. And it was super traumatic. It was so traumatic that like I literally could not walk in to the hospital. I could not drive past the hospital. Um, without, without something. I mean, I couldn't do it sober and, um, I gotta do something. Um, but you know, if I have, if I have these, if I have this pill, if I have something, I can, I can, I can be okay. But then it escalated and it escalated really fast and it escalated really bad. And not only did it escalate with my youth, but my marriage problems escalated and, um, I realized that I was really, really trapped. I realized I needed to leave my marriage because it was getting physically abusive. And I realized that I couldn't because my, my head wasn't clear. And I also realized that I was going to have to quit my job because at some point I was going to fuck something up and I was going to hurt somebody or I was going to get found out. And, um, then the recession comes, it's 2008, and my husband takes a, a job overseas back in Russia, and I'm like, fuck, now I'm alone. Now I got to take care of everything. I still got to work, um, but I was falling apart, and um, when I'm at the point where I'm thinking, I can't really keep doing this, something's got to change one of my brothers commits suicide um, and he had his own secret addiction that nobody knew about. And that just destroys me because I'm like, how could I not know? How could I not see this? Like I'm a professional. I've got my own problem. I should be, you know, I should like have radar. I should know. Um, and I spiral to the point where I am suicidal every day. I'm constantly using, I can't not use, and I start drinking as well. And still nobody knows. Um, my husband's gone all the time. Um, so I take a leave of absence from my job. Um, I finally tell my husband, look, I think I need some help. And he says, okay. Oh, no big deal. I know how to fix you. Um, just come over to Russia. Russians know how to deal with addiction. Come on. And especially alcoholism. I mean, if any, any, if any place knows how to handle alcoholism, it's Russia. And he's like, you can relax. You don't have to work. You can do whatever you want. You can just do with the kids. And I'm like, well, I mean, I don't know what else to do. Um, and that hope, I don't want to be married to him anymore, but, but I, I literally don't know what else to do. And I think, you know, well, maybe new environment, maybe that'll work. Um, the downside of this idea and this plan to move is that I, once I get there, I'm totally isolated. I speak the language, but I know nobody. I have no job. My parents are not speaking to me because. Um, I've left the cult and 
I have no money, you know, unless I get it from my husband. Like he controls everything. Uh, the physical abuse escalates. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, I think if you are someone who is listening to this podcast, you'll understand it doesn't take me long <laughs> to find drugs in Russia. Like literally maybe two weeks. And of course, when you are someone who is addicted to whatever, it, you never, when you stop for a little bit, you never, when you pick up again, <laughs> you never start out just a little bit. I mean, it might be just a little bit for a day or so, but you always immediately drop and bottom out and, and start using pretty heavily fast. And I start using things that I swore I would never use. And I start doing things I swore I would never do. And um, I meet some really shady people. <laughs> and I start getting involved in some really bad stuff. And at one point, um, and I should back up a little bit and explain that my husband, who's now my ex-husband, um, is working for some pretty scary people, too. Because, I mean, again, this is Russia. And I don't want to paint Russia in a bad light because I actually really love the country and the people. But there's some scary shit there. And so he's working for scary people. I'm dealing with scary people. We've got kids. <laughs> it's just a bad fucking situation. So one of the one of the people that I'm spending time with gets my husband's phone number and uses me to blackmail my husband. And basically what happened was, um, I don't know a lot of the details. I just know that some of the people that my husband worked with got involved. And so it was like mafia versus drug dealers. And yeah. I don't know exactly the details. I just know that my husband to this day is still pissed about it because it cost him some money. Um, and I mean, police were like, yeah, whatever. Uh, you know. Sorry, your husband at the time, was he a, a commercial pilot? He flew for rich people. Um, basically, private jets for rich people. And that's what he still does. Got it. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's how he ends up working for some shady people. Right. Okay. All adds up now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's a, kind of a major detail. But um, but my husband freaks the fuck out. <laughs> and uh, it gets really bad. Um, and things between me and my husband get really bad physically. Uh, the police get involved. And I'm like, you know, worried I'm going to get deported and I'm never going to see my kids again. And anyway, so it all gets kind of resolved, but I spend uh, a couple of weeks on the worst bender of my life, like waking up every morning, wishing I was dead, being really pissed off that I'm not literally trying to kill myself. 
by the sounds of it, uh, I take it these were opioid-based drugs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, I finally reached the point where I'm like, look, if I go any further, you know, yeah, I, I don't, I'm obviously not successful at killing myself here, so <laughs> I guess, yeah, my husband says, look, you know, this is your one chance. I'll send you to rehab, but this is your only chance. Take it or, you know, go live in the streets. But, um, so I go to rehab and re- rehab in Russia is, a. I mean, I haven't been to rehab in America, so I really don't know what to compare it to, but they don't let you leave. Like if you were like, okay, yeah, I don't want to be here anymore. They're like, shut up, sit down. You're not going anywhere. Um, it was in a big house in the middle of nowhere. And it was, this house was surrounded by a giant cement wall. And there's like, Russia's really great with public transportation, but there is no public transportation around this place. So even if you can figure out where you are, you're going to have to walk for miles before you can get anywhere near to the city. So like, I'm stuck. It's the middle of winter. And I'm like, well, fuck. Um, and like, my family's not speaking to me. And, you know, I'm just like, well, okay. Um, and after I'm there for a little while, I realize, holy shit, I am so fucked up. Um, and my, after about six weeks, my husband's like, okay, she should be fixed now. Um, send her home. And I'm like, I think I want to stay. And he's like, no, you're good. Come home. No, I think I want to stay. And he's calling and he's yelling at the administrators and he's saying, um, you're, you're uh, brainwashing her against me. You know, send her home. And uh, <laughs> the staff is telling me, you know, you need to do whatever you need to do to stay because he wants you sick. And I had never thought of that before. But, you know, sometimes people in your life, um, when you're in active addiction, they're in your life for a reason, and it's not a healthy reason. Um, so I managed to stay for four months before the staff is just like, we can't deal with him anymore. <laughs> We're sorry, but just go. So four months, which for me literally gave me the chance to save my life. And every day I am so fucking grateful. Um, I would be dead, no question. Um, there is so much about my life and about just things from ever my childhood and, and how I was raised about, you know, how you're not allowed to be angry about anything ever, because if you're angry or if you, if you express any displeasure about anything, that's the spirit of the devil and you are bad, you know, just basic things, you know, standing up for yourself, having healthy boundaries, totally new ideas to me. Um, so it gave me a really good starting point on things that I could work on and place, you know, areas that I could expand on and just general starting points for where to go with recovery. Um, so I go home and he's like, great, you're fixed. We can just pick up and live a happy life now. And I'm like, don't fuck up, don't fuck up, don't fuck up. <laughs> because 
uh, at four months, your brain is still kind of getting back online. I mean, your, your neurotransmitters and your receptors and everything is still healing. I mean, you got a long way to go. Your body's still wrecked. You're nowhere near better, not even close. Um, but he wanted a functional life and I was living at meetings because I didn't know what else to do. And at, at about six months, you know, so, uh, I've been home for two months. He says, nah, uh-uh. no more meetings. You're spending too much time at meetings. I think you're meeting guys there. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> you serious about this? Um, so he says, it's meetings or we're getting divorced. And now I can understand why a lot of spouses would have a hard time with, you know, the amount of time that recovery can take. Um, for him, it was really frustrating because this rehab required family members to attend therapy sessions while the um, family, while the other family member was in rehab. So he, you know, he had a basic general idea of what, I would need, but he just let it go in one ear and out the other. So we ended up getting divorced in Russia because I'm like, look, if I don't do this, I'm not going to make it. I need these meetings. I need the support. I got nothing else here because I was like, look, my kids can have a mom that's alive and not with the dad, or they can have a dead mom. No, alive's better. So I had no rights. I had to anything. I had no money. I couldn't work legally in the country. I, it, I mean, it was really bad. Um, I couched there for a long time. I, you know, fortunately I had friends that I could stay with. Um, I ended up finding work under the table. I could barely feed myself. Um, it was really, really fucking hard. Somehow I stayed clean. I think a lot of times it was purely out of rage um, because I was just like, no, I'm not going to let you and your shitty actions be the reason why I relapsed. No, fuck that. Um, and I would sit in meetings sometimes and people would be like, yeah, I quit, you know, whatever, drinking or heroin or whatever. And then, oh, God, just bless me with all this great stuff. And I'd be like, yeah, fuck you. <laughs> it is not that easy. And it does not work like that. Um, because it doesn't work like that. In sobriety, sometimes things just get a lot harder. Like your body falls apart because now, you know, you're dealing with the consequences of things that you've done for years and years. Um, you have to deal with all that trauma and feelings and repercussions. And, oh, it just used to make me so mad. That on top of the fact that, like you said earlier, during your upbringing, you were never allowed to even feel those feelings. Yeah. This was really the first time that you had to learn to sit with your feelings. Yeah. I mean, and the thing that, that about feelings is, and I see this all day, every day with patients, we're allowed to have feelings. Feelings are normal. Anxiety is important. Anxiety is what keeps us from doing things like not looking both ways when we cross the street or not putting on a mask when we go into a crowded store or anywhere anymore. Um, you know, anxiety is what, what pushes us to like study for tests and it, it's always going to be there and it's important. Um, sadness 
is is a feeling that's important to feel from time to time. It can tell us something. Anger. When we feel anger, there's a reason why we feel it. And sometimes it's because people are stepping on our boundaries. If we're feeling anger because, like, you know, the grocery store is out of our favorite bread and we want to, like, throw our shoe through the window, that maybe is something we need to look at. But, um, you know, feelings, we need to allow ourselves to feel them and sit with them for a minute. But, you know, it's when our feelings are, like, so out of control that it's just an exhausting endeavor to deal with them minute to minute. Okay, that's when we need to maybe consider getting some help but feelings are so important and we're allowed to have them and they're beautiful and they're natural and we need to respect what our feelings are telling us and it's so frustrating because there's and especially in the United States it's like no everybody wants to be happy and everybody wants to be numb and it's not healthy um it's just not, and it's not normal. But anyway, uh, I mean, it just it, it just used to piss me off that there was this attitude that, you know, you, you get clean and, and suddenly this magical being in the sky gives you everything. And that's just not how it works. And I would watch people listen to that and work really hard at getting clean and then expect that everything was going to be great. And when that didn't happen, they'd get really disenchanted and relapse, and understandably so. So I can understand why a lot of people have frustrations with AA and NA because there's a lot of bullshit that goes on there. Um, and it's important to temper that with reality. Um, so I spent several years in Russia. I ended up meeting my current husband there, um, interestingly enough, in a narcotics and on a barbecue. Um, and after several years, I came back to North America, was lucky enough to be able to get back into working in medicine and mental health. I uh, now have my kids with me. And I mean, now after nine years of, of sobriety, you know, you think, oh no, everything's great. Everything's easy, but you know, it's still the same bullshit all the time. Still the same. I always want to ease that fear of not being good enough, of of that fear of making a mistake. You know, all that stuff from when I was little. That bullshit is all still there. And I like to joke that my brain is always playing a game of the mouse is trying to find the cheese. The cheese being anything. You know. To increase dopamine, whether it's um, spending too much time on Reddit or spending too much money or um, uh, eating too much or spending hours trading cryptocurrency, you know, just whatever it is to drown out feelings or um, reality, to not pay attention to what's going on in real life. And I, I think that we think of addiction as only drugs or alcohol and it's so much more complex than that. It's not wanting to be in the moment and not wanting to feel, wanting to be numb. And it's really, really, really hard 
to just deal with feelings, no matter how much sobriety you have. Um, And no matter how optimal my treatment is for my mental health, no matter how much time I spend in therapy, I still want to be numb. I still want to feel better. And just accepting that is a really difficult thing. I liked how you said earlier that only addicts really understand that if you want something, you can get it. I remember being in sketchy places around sketchy people. (laughs) So sketchy that looking back on it, I have no idea how I had the balls to be there. (laughs) Yeah. But I did because I was addicted. Yeah, yeah. And the worst part of it is that, like, I look like a soccer mom, and I always have. Like, I don't look like the stereotypical what you would expect. And that has worked to my detriment. That allowed me to continue for far too long. And, you know, I never had any fear because I was so stupidly naive. Um, And that almost got me killed far too many times. And, but on the other hand, you know, I, yeah. Um, are you able to talk a little bit more about this cult? Like, are we talking like a, a community and a compound type thing? No, no. It, it is a worldwide, it's recognized as a religion, but it shouldn't be. It's a cult. Um, hmm. it is. Yeah. And, and you know, it, <sighs> Oh, I just realized does does the name of the cult rhyme with Schmorman? Yeah. Okay, got it. <laughs> and Continue. It's it's it, for some reason it's a respected religion, but they do horrible things. They are horribly against LGBT, um, and, and anyone who doesn't fit their mold. I mean, God forbid you are a woman and you don't get married. God forbid you don't have six kids. Um, and they are responsible for just uh, countless LGBT suicides. They have more money than, uh, I, I don't know, any corporation that I can think of off the, off the top of my head, yet they demand, you know, their members give their 10%. They... Um, they're really, really shaming about sexuality. And when you're young, they bring you into this office with this, you know, older gentleman who's like a dentist or whatever, because they don't have professional clergy. And he'll start asking you about whether or not you masturbate at eight years old. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just really damaging. And they're considered family oriented and they're considered really great, but no, it's really fucked up. It's just really fucked up. And there's a lot of sexual abuse. There's just a lot of really bad stuff. And I I want to find the good in it because my family is all still in it. I can't. I just can't. It's dirty and rotten and it's a lie to the core. It, it is a cult. Masquerading as, you know, a respected religion. Um, but it is all about money. And it's just, I can't. I, and I don't want to say really any very much more about it because it, the whole thing is just disgusting. They hacked all 
generous and philanthropical and humanitarian, and they're just horrible. They're just a bleh. and they they cover up sexual abuse and forgive the abusers and continue to put them in positions of power over vulnerable people, and it's just over and over and over again. It's sickening, and you know. I wouldn't be so angry if I didn't know so many people personally that have been hurt and damaged badly. So, yeah, myself included. Something that you have in common with pretty much every caller on the show so far is that at first your life got much, much harder in sobriety than it was in active addiction. Yeah, it gets way harder. Like, your body starts falling apart, your teeth fall apart. You find out you have all these problems you didn't know you had. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't want to make sobriety sound like it's terrible because it's not. It is in many ways so much better. Like not having that heavy weight and that crushing, oh my God, why am I still alive? Oh my God, I have to use. Oh my God, I have to. Where am I going to get the money? Oh my God, where am I going to find it? That stress. Oh, not having that, just not feeling like a piece of shit, Um, being able to just wake up in the morning, do my job, take care of my kids, just live a normal life. It's fantastic. Being able to be proud of my accomplishments, being able to just be is fantastic. And, you know, I don't wake up every morning, you know, roses and sunshine, but nobody does. Um, I'm really grateful for all of the craziness because it gives me something to compare my daily life to. Um, Yeah, it's hard. Life is hard, but life is also incredibly beautiful. And I have so much to be thankful for. There's just a never-ending cascade of amazing little things all the time. You know, like one of my kids gets an A in a class or just comes home happy, you know, or somebody says something nice. There's just so many beautiful things that happen all the time that you don't even recognize until you look back and you remember what your life was like. Just being able to not feel sick all the time. Little things. Not have to worry about who you are going to steal from or who you're going to corrupt, you know, screw over. Ugh, I don't miss all that. Even though you don't miss it, I really appreciate you taking the time to look back on it with me. Thank you for listening. And I hope by looking back on it, you got something out of it. I actually, I actually think I did. Or you will when you, when you listen to the phone call. I don't know if I'm going to be brave enough to listen, I, <laughs> but, but we'll see. Just about any activity or process can become an unhealthy obsession. A process like religion typically sets out guidelines and rules to live by. According to this caller... Those with a dangerous relationship to religion begin to follow these rules strictly 
regardless of the consequences. They do not stop to question them, but they simply adhere to the rules with a single-minded obsession. But just like worshiping can become an addiction, addiction can become a process of worship. I'm Quick Nick. Thanks for listening. If you want to anonymously tell your story about addiction, find Addicts in the Dark on Instagram.